Hello and welcome to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, broadcasting from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York, on the unceded homelands of the Mohican people known today as the Stockbridge-Munsee community. I'm Sina Bazilahickey. And I'm Bria Barthel. Glad to have Sina back in the seat. Today on the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, we begin with Mark Dunley's report from Saturday's rally at the Capitol calling for a ceasefire in Gaza and an end to the Mideast violence. Then I talk with Natasha Pernica, Pernica, Executive Director of the Food Pantries for the Capital District, about the increased need for food and donations. After that, retired meteorologist Hugh Johnson joins us in his new earlier time slot to share information on volcanoes, Alaskan snowstorms, and our weather. Later on, Larissa Borglum speaks with urban mushroom farmer, philosopher, and educator Avery Stemple about emerging uses for fungi in our municipal waste systems and to detoxify contaminated sites. Yes, mushrooms. Finally, we bring an archive episode from Catherine Rafferty about the process for certifying midwives in New York State. But first, here are a few headlines. Governor Hochul is reportedly raising concerns over the Tropical Deforestation Free Procurement Act, which is awaiting her signature or veto after passing the state legislature. The act would prohibit the state from contracting with companies that use tropical hardwoods or products that contribute to deforestation. Soy, beef, palm oil, coffee, cocoa, paper, and other products could not be sourced from land with an at-risk forest. Amtrak service was suspended yet again between New York City and Albany this time Sunday afternoon due to, quote, safety concerns stemming from structure issues of a non-Amtrak privately owned building above the Empire Line tracks in New York City. End quote. As of Monday, a number of Amtrak trains from Albany were stopping in Croton to transfer patient passengers to Metro North. The Times Union reports that a state court investigation found newly reelected Albany County Family Court Judge Susan Kushner made a racially offensive remark last year about an Hispanic American attorney, tried to interfere with potential witness statements and bad-mouthed court officers. The ongoing court battles about New York State's congressional redistricting maps hit another snag when one of the judges on the Court of Appeals hearing the case recused herself from the proceedings. Judge Caitlin Halligan was viewed as the swing vote on the seven-judge panel. Related questions include why she recused herself, and what steps can or should be taken to appoint a temporary replacement. Governor Hochul recently released a comprehensive overview of crime trends in New York State in 2023. The Troy Record reports that, quote, the oversight highlights a 6% decrease in violent crime outside of New York City during the first six months of the year as compared to the first half of 2022. Data collectively reports uh, reported by police departments and sheriff's officers in 57 counties showed decreases in each of the four violent crime categories, murder, negative 27 percent, rape, negative 16 percent, robbery, negative 5 percent, and aggravated assault, negative 4 percent, end quote. And that's it for the headlines. 
This past Saturday, an estimated 1,000 people rallied at the state capital in Albany to support a call for a ceasefire in Gaza and the end to violence. Mark Dunley brings us this report. 1,000 people, many families with children, rallied at the state capital on Saturday to support a call for a ceasefire in Gaza and to end the violence. The event was organized by the local Muslim community. Speakers included Inman Dehafa Sabawi uh, from the Al Hidea Center, Reverend Peter Cook, Executive Director of New York State Council of Churches, and Dr. Alea Saeed. The speakers mourned the more than 10,000 individuals, mainly civilians and children, who had been killed in response to the earlier attacks by Hamas. Chants played a major role, with the common one being free, free Palestine, from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free. The organizers rejected the idea that the chant was a call to end the Israeli state, saying instead it was one of hope and a call to live together in peace. Several speakers noted that the nearby Veterans Day parade had initially been started to celebrate the armistice from World War I, a call to end all wars. Free, free Palestine! Free, free Palestine! From the river to the sea! Palestine will be free! One, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. Occupation no more. Occupation no more. Five, six, seven, eight. Five, six, seven, eight. Israel is a terror state. Israel is a terror state. One, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. Occupation no more. Occupation no more. Six, seven, eight. Five, six, seven, eight. Israel is an apartheid state. is the prayer. The first step is the spirit. And our spirit is here strong today. As we know, this is a day that we recognize the veterans and we had a parade earlier. And we want to especially thank veterans against war. Those who know that freedom belongs to everyone. So thank you. Thank you for being a voice for freedom. They are human. Do something for them. When you see a woman with the entire family are killed. They are not normal. When you see an old woman with Palestinian accent saying, Chef Jafar from Masjid al-Hidayah, I would like to thank everybody who spared the time today to be here, to spend moments of support, supporting that which is right, supporting that which saves the human life, for really spending time to say and to voice your concerns that we are here to save human lives. My dear brothers and sisters, wherever you came from, regardless who you are, whether you are a Muslim or you are a Jew or you are a Christian, or maybe you are from a different faith, I know you are here today for one thing. You are calling our representatives, you are calling our governments, you are calling our representatives everywhere in the Congress and in the Senate. You are here to tell very loud and very clear to our governor that we need ceasefire now. 
Cease fire, let it be clear. As you have heard in the verses that were recited a few minutes ago, this is a very profound rule that Allah revealed to us not only in the Quran but in previous books that whoever killed a human life unjustly as if he killed the entire humanity. That is why we are here today because we care about the human life. We care about children. We care about innocent women and innocent men. We are here to voice our concern that enough is enough. Our humanity is in danger. What's happening to our humanity? People used to look to the United States of America as a model of freedom and democracy. So where is this freedom and democracy? Freedom for whom? Selectively. And we would like to make sure this is heard and heard by everybody. The thousands of people, hundreds of thousands of people everywhere who are protesting, who are protesting and voicing their concerns that enough is enough. For how long we are going to wait? How many children need to be killed? How many women need to be killed? How many mosques need to be destroyed? How many hospitals need to be destroyed? And for how long? It is time that we need ceasefire now. Peter Cook, can I serve as executive director of the New York State Council of Churches? We represent 7,500 Protestant Christian congregations across this state. Not all of our congregations see the conflict in the Holy Land in the same way, but we all value in our council freedom of thought and expression, and we defend the right to speak and protest at all times. I join members of our executive committee and bear witness to the truth that every person on this earth is created in the image of God. Embrace the right for every person to speak their truth and have a life free from violence. And we are also here to testify against true Islamophobia, true anti-Semitism, and true anti-Christian thought. And we do that now so that we can create space for a just and lasting peace where the dignity and rights of people of all faiths are honored and respected in this contested land that all may live together and be free. Cease fire now! Cease fire now! Cease fire now! Cease fire now! No tax dollars! No tax dollars! For baby slaughter! For baby slaughter! Not a nickel, not a dime! Not a nickel, not a dime! No more money for Israel's crimes! No more money for Israel's crimes! First of all, I want to speak to our Palestinians here. Some of you I see right now. And I just want to let you know, we love you and we know you. We'll be here for you for as long as it takes. 
but we're not stopping. This rally should be a start of something. This is not a rally that means something on its own if it doesn't start something. So is everybody here ready to start something? You know, people forget. People get all excited. They want to do the right thing, but they forget. Today, as you know, is Veterans Day. Right? I want to remind you, it's important to remember to stay focused on what we need to do next. I want to start asking now about who's here. Are there any elected representatives here? For that Middle East visit, right? We paid for it. And has, has anybody from the government asked you, how are you doing? No? Okay. Now this, right now we have an almost unprecedented rise in Islamophobia. All my Hijabi sister here, love you. Thank you for being strong every day. I want to take a moment actually to mention Attorney General Letitia James, who's reached out to our community and she wants to give that message to all of you to say, if you see your rights being violated, if you see Islamophobia being used without somebody being uh, held responsible, then please reach out to the Attorney General's office people that... Um, what Dr. Aliyah mentioned, what happens after this rally? Alhamdulillah, we came here with a lot of energy, a lot of support. What happens after this? A few messages to different segments of our community. Number one, to the youth and the young adults. You now have this energy surging through you. You have these feelings. You have this sadness and this anger. This is fuel for you to use. Don't let this die down. The attacks stop, a ceasefire happens, and we all go back to sleep. You're awake now. You have to use this energy. We have to use this energy and channel it in the proper way. This has been Mark Dunley for the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. Thanks to Mark for that report. Earlier segments about the conflict in uh, Israel and Palestine and Gaza um, can be found on our website, and we will continue to follow peace initiatives in the region. And next we look at a concern closer to home. In this next piece, I talk with Natasha Pernica from the food pantries for the Capital District about their ever-increasing need for food to help financially struggling individuals and families. This is Bria Barthel for Hudson Mohawk Magazine. With all of the coming holidays that are so food-related, I thought it was time to catch up with our friend Natasha Pernica, Executive Director of the Food Pantries for the Capital District, to hear what's going on in the Capital District for people who might need help during the holidays or for people who might especially want to provide help during the holidays. So, Natasha, welcome back to Hudson Mohawk Magazine. Thank you so much for having me. Now, I mentioned that you're with the Food Pantries for the Capital District. So let's start with just a sort of defining of terms and what's the difference between Food Pantries of the Capital District and Food Pantries and Regional Food Bank and whatever other organizations might be involved that I'm not thinking of. Thanks so much for the opportunity. So if you are a person or a family that's in need of food assistance, you would go to a food pantry. Food pantries are often located in churches or other religious organizations or in human service organizations. And in our coalition of about 70 food pantries here in Albany, Rensselaer, Saratoga, and Schenectady counties, 
Nearly 50% of the pantries are totally volunteer run. The other pantries have usually one staff or a couple staff members to help. And most of the food pantries distribute out to community members they get from the food bank. So the food bank we think of as like the big wholesaler that brings in a lot of food. And then the pantries get their food from the food bank. And then individuals and families go to food pantries to get their food. So the food from the regional food bank goes directly to the pantries. It doesn't come through food pantries for the Capital District. So one of the things the food pantries for the Capital District does in support of our member food pantries is we deliver a lot of food from the food bank. So I mentioned that it's a largely volunteer-run group of pantries. And I don't know if you've ever tried to put a 1,000 pounds of food in your own vehicle, but... <laughs> It's a lot of food. And so one of our kind of shared services is that we actually pick up food from the food bank. We can move three to 4,000 pounds of food per pantry in our trucks, and we deliver it right to the pantry's doors so they don't have to send their volunteers over to the food bank. 4,000 pounds, two tons of food in one truck? Well, our trucks actually can carry 12,000 pounds of food. So it would be about three or four pantries per truck per day, and we have several trucks. So that way the pantries can order a lot more food than they used to have the capacity to order at a, at a particular time. So this year we've already moved three million pounds of food from the food bank out to pantries. We're up with delivery about 28% compared to last year. Um, pantry need has been much higher uh, than we've ever seen it. So we're moving a lot more food. So I know that during the pandemic, there was a lot of concern about access to food because people were out of work, but that hasn't diminished. There's still a higher need, a growing need. Yes. In fact, when inflation happened last year and then the federal... COVID emergency program started rolling back, we actually saw the highest number of people here in the capital region ever visiting our coalition. We had nearly 70,000 people last year visit food pantries right here in the capital region, 70,000 people. And this year, year to date compared to last year, the service levels at pantries are 15% up. So that would be the numbers are the individuals, then the service levels count how many times they come in and how much they need. Yes, yes. And so uh, here in the capital region, about 80% of the pantries in our coalition are seeing increases. Um, some pantries are seeing very large increases of people or people even having to return multiple times per month. And just some examples um, we had an older gentleman who's retired, living off of a very limited income. And when the emergency SNAP allocations ended, he was only getting $28 per month in SNAP or food stamps. And he said, how am I going to make ends meet? And he started going to a food pantry. We're seeing a lot of working people turning to food pantries. Um, I spoke with a woman who was an administrative assistant uh, whose husband also works and they have children. And she said, we could not be making ends meet right now if we weren't able to get groceries from our local food pantry. I'm still stuck on that $28 a month, that $7 or less a week. And that certainly doesn't go very far, even for one person. So 
You mentioned that you serve Schenectady, Albany, Rensselaer, and Saratoga counties. And before we started taping, I was surprised at something you said about Saratoga County. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. A lot of people don't think that there are very many people in need of services in Saratoga County. And in fact, Saratoga County has a lot of poverty and low-wage jobs. In fact, there's a lot of you know, trailer parks that you, you know, off the beaten path. And so you don't necessarily see it. And so people don't realize um, that there is a lot of need in Saratoga County as well. So it's particularly challenging as well in the rural parts of Saratoga and the more mountainous areas as well. People can be really isolated and um, have real barriers to accessing food. And then for food... We used to say hungry, and hunger is you don't have immediate food. And then it became food insecurity, that you might have enough food that you're not hungry, but you don't know where the next meal is coming from. And then I recently heard a term, nutritional insecurity. Can you tell us something about that? Sure. I appreciate that. So yes, nutrition security is something we're striving for, which would mean that all people have access to enough nutritious food for a healthy and productive life. So that's the gold standard. Like we would like to make sure that everybody has healthy food, culturally appropriate food. That's one of the things when we're relying on charity and food pantries are charity, you know, we're not a government program. You wanna make sure that there's as much dignity um, as you can provide for people who have opportunity for to select a variety or we call it client choice where, um, you know, tuna fish or peanut butter, or in some other communities, you know, it might be having lentils or dried beans um, or rice, depending on, you know, where the people are from in the community. Um, There's a lot of differences between urban, suburban, rural neighborhoods, even within one town or city. Each pantry gets to know their guests and gets to know, you know, what are the particular food items that we need to have. And that's where, where I mentioned most of the food comes from the food bank, but there's also a lot of need for items that aren't available at the food bank. So if you're a person who's thinking about doing a food or fun drive this year, we also would really like to encourage people to ask the local food pantry in their own neighborhood, what do they need? Because they might have a family that's gluten-free or other dietary issues, or they might have immigrants from a particular area that really could utilize certain things that aren't available at the food bank. So you can find the food pantries by going to thefoodpantries.org, and we have a map where you can search up the food pantries right in your own neighborhood if you want to ask directly what their specific needs are. And you had mentioned um, before we started that you could use financial donations even more effectively than getting the food donations. Yeah, we definitely want to encourage people to donate dollars. I think a lot of times when people think about a food pantry, they think, I'm going to do a food drive, which is great and useful. But uh, when pantries are using dollars at the food bank, the dollars can go a lot farther than if you were going to go to the grocery store and buy items. And that way, pantries can also buy what they need. There's also a lot of other expenses that pantries have, like delivering food, so paying for fuel and and truck costs, as well as heating, you know, supplies, 
uh, rent, uh, operational costs as well. So pantries do need funding to continue to operate. And the food pantries for the Capital District also needs funding so that we can be there to support our member food pantries. In fact, we're doing something right now called Fill the Truck Fund Drive, um, where if you think about it, a dollar can provide up to 6.25 pounds of food. And we're just going to say a truck can carry about 10,000 pounds of food. So we're challenging people to raise $1,600 to fill a truck of food. And as I mentioned earlier, we have already delivered 3 million pounds of food this year. So the if you're doing okay right now and you're set for the holidays and would like to spread the cheer um, to people in the community who could really use your help, uh, this is a great time to come together and raise awareness and raise funding in support of the need. I'm still stuck on how that works out with the culturally appropriate. Can food pantries ask for what they want? How does it work for getting the right kinds of food to the right food pantries? Pantries are able to order food from the food bank so they can choose what foods they want to order. But if the foods are not available at the food bank, they turn to the regular grocery store like you and I to buy the culturally appropriate or specialized foods that they need. One of the things that we're doing here at the food pantries to help the local food pantries is through our Healthy Pantry Initiative. Next year, in 2024, we're going to be launching a financial incentive program to give pantries a little bit of extra funding so that they can stock healthier items and culturally appropriate items that often are more expensive for all of us to stock and most likely will require them to shop at a regular grocery store like everybody else. But we feel like it's really important to provide as much dignity and opportunity as we can through the food pantry system. I have lots more questions, but we're out of time. This is Bria Barthel again talking with Natasha Pernica, Executive Director of The Food Pantries for the Capital District. They service Schenectady, Albany, Rensselaer, and Saratoga counties. Natasha, thanks so much for talking with me. Thank you so much for having me. For more information about the services, donation opportunities, that quote-unquote fill-the-truck initiative and more, visit thefoodpantries.org. And for those just tuning in, I'm Sina Bazil-Hickey. And I'm Bria Barthel. You're listening to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine on the Hudson Mohawk Radio Network, WOOCLP 105.3 FM Troy, WOOGLP 92.7 FM Troy, W-O-O-S-L-P 98.9 FM Schenectady and W-O-O-A-L-P 106.9 FM Albany, plus streaming online at mediasanctuary.org. This program comes from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York. If you like what you hear, you can support this program by telling a friend, joining our team, or just listening and uh, you can share what you hear by finding the stories that you like on our website. It means a lot to us. And now we return to Hugh Johnson. Hugh Johnson's on the line with us, retired National Weather Service meteorologist Hugh Johnson for this weekly discussion on weather and climate. Welcome back, Hugh. Hello there, Sina. How you doing? Very good. Glad to have you here. And we're speaking on a Monday, and this morning, boy, was it cold, cold. So how is that? Uh, my fr- 
I was wondering, like, how does that fare for the beginning cold season of the year? How does it fare compared to other years? Actually, we're pretty much on target. It's really not that unusual. It was it was the coldest morning since March 31st, officially at the airport, and it was seven or eight degrees off the record low. So it was about 10 degrees below our normal 32, but we've had temperatures you know, a lot colder than this earlier in the year. We've had temperatures in the teens in late October, so it really isn't that unusual, but it definitely grabbed your attention. It definitely grabbed mine when I went out this morning. You could feel that really deep freeze in the air. Yeah. So at least we haven't had plowable snow here yet, just a few traces. But I hear Anchorage has been getting a lot of snow. Is that right? That is correct. They have been getting hammered, uh, Bria. They have had a, a, a whole bunch of snowstorms. And at one point, they had nearly two feet on the ground. It's compacted down to 19 inches. I just checked their, their daily climate report. And But here's the thing. looks like they're going to get another storm. Later this week, a big upper air low is going to park over Alaska, and you know it's it's hard to say how much how much exact snow will get at this point, but they could get be getting another ten inches or so. And just to let you know that they already had thirty inches this year already. Uh, their average is a little higher than ours, seventy nine. Um, but in the in the year two thousand fifteen sixteen, when there was an El Nino, they only had for the entire winter. Are you ready for this? They only had thirty eight point three for the entire season. And the year before, they even had less. And then a few years before that, they had 134 inches. So, yeah. We got more snow than Alaska got in some seasons? Oh, yeah, it happens. It does happen. It just depends. They they were in a ridge, especially 14, 15. They were in a huge ridge, and we were getting bombed. We had like 70-some inches that year, and they only had 25. Yeah, that happens. It just depends on how the jet stream sets up and how all the weather players – play out it's uh it is that way but they're 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 off and running this year and again we're going to get a lot more potentially a lot more snow later this week another thing about alaska is the volcanoes and i believe it's off of the coast of japan where there's a new volcano that has made an island so more volcanic uh, more, more volcanic eruptions is this due to climate change well i don't think it's directly due to climate change but climate change definitely could have a bearing on increasing the amount of volcano activity, especially in northern uh, volcanoes because of the shifting in ice, the change in, in the melting in ice, and changes the uh, tectonics, the plates, and, and so forth. So, yeah, I'd say there is definitely a correlation there uh, between where it's already been 66, uh, believe it or not, there have been 66 active uh, or volcano eruptions this year, most of them fortunately not major, thank goodness. Uh, the major ones, you know, they grab your attention. They come every 10 years or so. And uh, like a Krakatoa or, or, or Mount St. Helens or something like that. Uh, there was one in I- Iceland really bad in 2010. Am I even going to try to pronounce the uh, volcano name? No way. But it, it was uh, it, it disrupted air flights. Well, I remember and, that. Uh, yeah, that was really bad. The, the ones the ones that uh, are set off in the southern hemisphere and closer to the equator, the ones that cool the earth down more. We talked about this earlier, uh, earlier at some point. The ones in the northern latitude, not as much because there's just not as much to cool down. In fact, in some cases, they might even warm things up a little bit. And then that, that one in Iceland in 2010, there may, it, it probably may have helped produce more blocking in the atmosphere. And it, if I don't remember this, but we had a wicked winter the next winter. It was a very, very stormy and snowy winter along much of the eastern seaboard. The second one in a row, but this one was further north. And really, we had like over 80 inches that winter. 
So it may have had something to do with that, probably not directly, but uh, yeah, volcan- volcano eruptions are obviously, uh, it can be very critical. <laughs> oh, right. Yeah, that correlation, we actually just had the... Uh um, uh, volcano uh, event here and with Beatriz Cortez and her volcano was looking at the Ilopango from El Salvador, mm-hmm. which caused like the uh, a total blackout. Um, like, a, That's right. I don't think apocalypse is the right word. I'm not coming in with the right word, but I, I forgot just how much of an impact volcanoes can have. So you're saying that there's a possibility that the Icelandic volcano did have some year-long impact on the climate. And are there Absolutely. other cases I mean, more recent that you can also point to? Well, Mount St. Helens was a, was a classic. That actually cooled the atmosphere, the earth down. You could actually see the infrared uh, signature, and that, that really caused the cooling and a couple of and perhaps a couple of really cold winters. Not the first winter so much for us, but the second winter and the third winter especially was very cold. The winter of 93-94, a lot of scientists say that could have had a, it was a, a kind of a, a backlash from, uh, from uh, yeah, from Pinatou. And, uh, yeah, it, it's definitely, I mean, volcano eruptions, are, and, and they're game changers. I mean, they, they, if they, if they uh, you know, push stuff into the atmosphere, enough uh, aerosol, they will, it will cool it down, especially the southern ones, and we will, t- you know, see a big change in, in, in the weather, absolutely. We could use some of that cooling a bad one now. Yeah. I'm sorry? I heard we could use some of that cooling now. I heard we've had our warmest 12 months on record. Is that related to El Nino? Well, I think it's partially contributed to El Nino. Absolutely. El Nino is now considered it's now a, a strong El Nino and uh, certainly adding a little more uh, temperature to the atmosphere. But, of course, we have climate change. Uh, we, were, we were plenty warm without El Nino, but now with the El Nino, it's probably going to get even warmer. Uh, and there's all, a lot of scientists are saying next year is an excellent chance that that will be our warmest year yet. This year could end up being the warmest year. I mean, this is a 12-month period between October and October. we still got November and December, and so it could still cool down a little bit. But next year, the projection is even for a warmer year with the El Nino uh, expected to continue well into the spring. And, and the lingering effects will probably continue into the summer and possibly in the fall of next year. I was reading about the climate change and the hottest this month and that month and that month and that month on record. And one of the statements that stuck with me was somebody said he's concerned that the hottest summer on record or the hottest year on record might turn out to be the coldest one in the rest of our lifetime, that it's a permanent change, not just a temporary spike. Would you go along with that? Well, so he's talking about maybe the uh, um, the Gulf Stream shutting down. Is that what you're saying? I'm not, I, I didn't quite understand the question, to be honest. I don't yeah. remember what it was, but he was saying basically this may be the hottest period so far, but it's just going to keep being the hottest oh, ab- month, the hottest oh, absolutely. year. Absolutely. Oh, if, if we don't do, if we don't change how we how much CO2 we put in the atmosphere. There's no doubt that's going to happen again. The one thing that could change drastically things is that the Gulf Stream shuts down and there's, the jury is still out on that. Uh, there are some signs that it is weakening, but just bear a little bit. So that could really change the whole uh, the whole structure of the temperature profile. But right now, we, we just keep putting CO2 in the atmosphere. We're just going to keep warming up. And, and, and of course, the El Nino will help the cause too. So I agree with that statement. Yes. Mm. 
Yeah, it uh, seems to be what everybody's talking about. Uh, very frightful, but uh, maybe there's some solutions we can talk about uh, or what, what science is looking at for solutions in another sure. um, episode. Yep. But we Absolutely. began this uh, looking at the chilly Monday morning. Um, and so we have about two minutes left. I'd love to get your insight into what is looking at the week ahead. All right, great, great. We're actually going to warm up. Um, tomorrow will be a little warmer than today and then even better on Wednesday and warmer still on Thursday. Temperatures up in the 50s. We talked about this last week, and I still the signal was there, and it's still there for us to get to near 60 by Friday. Showers late in the day Friday. Looks like we're going to have some rain on the weekend. By the way, this last week, it was the, 11, it was the first time in 11 weeks we had absolutely no precipitation. That's pretty amazing in itself. But oh, wow. We'll probably get some, we'll get some rain on the weekend cool it down, and then we're going to watch a storm as we get into Thanksgiving week. It, it's still way too early to turtle. It will be rain or possibly something else. Uh, but we'll really have to keep an eye on right around Thanksgiving. So there's a storm on the weekend to watch, and then one Wednesday, Thursday, right around Thanksgiving. Uh, and that the one on the weekend will definitely be rain. The one later next week we'll have to keep an eye on because there is going to be some cold air, some, some really cold air trying to come down right behind that and everything works out, we could get cold enough for snow. I'm not saying it's going to, but it's something the bears watching because, of course, the big travel weekend or travel time. <laughs> All right, so with a uh, little bit of warmer weekend, coming from a plant family, this is the time where you're like, do I cover my plant or do I bring it inside? What is the possibility of frost in the next week? Well, we already had our killer frog. We got down to 21. I mean, I, I, but... Yeah, the rest of the week doesn't look that cold. So, but if you bring things problem. back outside or cover them, are there is there is there still frost in the next week? Yeah, I mean tonight we close to freezing, and then we'll probably be in the upper thirties. And then by the weekend, by Sunday, Sunday night, we might be cold enough for frost. But okay. you know, I guess I'm surprised anything even grows. I mean, the sun angle is 29 degrees now. I mean, and you only get a nine and a half hour of daylight, ten hour of daylight, whatever. I, I'm surprised things can still grow. I guess that's. Oh, there's still. I'm not. I'm not a gardener. <laughs> kale and parsley and many other things. Yeah, if you just give it a little That's bit true. of shelter. Kale. Yeah, absolutely. Kale there's still things. Kale, but right. thank you so much, Hugh. This is always a pleasure to talk with you, and we're looking forward to All right, um, great. talking to you again next week. Thanks so much. All right. Have a great one. Take care. You bye-bye. too. Thanks. Bye bye. Thanks, Hugh. And now we turn to a novel development in processing food waste and detoxifying contaminated sites. The use of fungi, yes, mushrooms. Larissa Borglum brings us this report. We're talking with Avery Stemple, founder and owner-operator of Collar City Mushrooms, an urban mushroom farm, education center, and community gathering space. In recent years, there's been growing interest in everything that fungi can do, especially how they can help us live more sustainably. Today we're discussing how fungi can be used to deal with waste and pollution. Um, Avery, to start us off, can you tell us a little bit about the role that fungi play in decomposition? Fungi are the great decomposers of the world. Without mushrooms, there wouldn't be soil, and they break down plant and other organic matter and turn them into bioavailable nutrients for the plants that are currently growing. So they continue that cycle of decomposition uh, throughout their lives and all over the world. Mm -hmm. So how can we utilize those decomposition properties to deal with pollution and other waste? Sure, there are a variety of fungal strains that break down different 
components of things that we've manufactured. So mm -hmm. there's a, a strain called Pestiloteopsis microspora, whose common name is the plastic-eating fungi. Oh. And it breaks down uh, urethane bonds in uh, specific kinds of uh, plastics and actually then produces a, an edible fruit body. So if you inoculate, say, a, a landfill with this type of mycelium, you know, it can break down the, the plastics, certain kinds of plastics that are in the landfill and, and reduce their impact on uh, the future. That is, um, it's just amazing how many kinds of fungi there are. Like, we know so little about fungi. It's like they're, it's like they're, they're aliens that live on our planet, you know? They can do so many amazing things. Um, so what is being done locally? Are there any municipalities that are harnessing the power of fungi in our waste systems or planning to do so? Yes, there are. Uh, so the town of Bethlehem in Albany County is looking to use mycelium to break down their paper waste and return it more easily into the compost cyst stream. And they have taken some of the shredded paper from their town offices and inoculated it with a mycelium from the mushroom blocks that we've provided. And they're experimenting with uh, strains and evaluating whether it's feasible to create a mycelium uh, stream for composting all of this paper waste. Right. So, um, so it sounds like Holler City Mushrooms is working with municipalities to, um, like, make this more of a more of a policy, more of a routine way of dealing with um, municipal waste. We are, yeah, municipal waste and also uh, long-standing brownfield sites. So we've mm -hmm. been in discussion with representatives from the city to use mycelium in order to remediate some of the industrial toxified spaces that are exist in the south uh, of the city mm. so troy was a huge industrial you know uh, um, city and it, the industries shifted but the waste stayed mm -hmm. and so now there's acres and acres of all of this uh, in, in uh, toxified land that really has sat as a brownfield site and the EPA just did a phase three evaluation of of the waste and hopefully we get the clearance soon to work with this these um, toxic sites and experiment with the mycelium to see you know how deep the extraction process actually works and we've partnered with Ecovative, the uh, mycelium-based packaging company in uh, Green Island, mm -hmm. and they produce tons of mycelium waste. And we, they, they've said that we can take their mycelium and, and help remediate the um, waste fields in Troy. So using leftover mycelium as, waste, as a waste remediator, that is just so amazing. That is so circular. So it sounds like mushrooms or mycelium or fungi can be used not just to help decompose things, not just to help break down organic or inorganic matter, but 
also to detoxify um, polluted sites. That's correct. Yeah. 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 And one of the things that we started early on um, was using oyster uh, mycelium to break down cigarette butts. And they can actually decompose the cigarette butts and render them into a compostable uh, material. So wow. instead of like the asbestos and fibers of the you know cigarette butts sitting around for, for a thousand years, you know, we can feed it to mushrooms and get them to, to uh, compost it. So that sounds almost like a super fund type thing. That sounds almost like um, some of these very polluted sites that the government has to intervene in and come and clean up. That sounds like potentially um, something that mycelium could be used in. Yeah, absolutely. There, there are mycologists around the world who are experimenting with the impact mycelium can have on a variety of different things. And there's even research going on in Italy, uh, and this was a couple years ago, about a f strain of fungi that renders the uh, active compounds in asbestos inert. And so wow. if you feed, you know, asbestos to this specific strain of, of fungi, it then breaks it down and, and makes it non, not hazardous anymore. So there's there, the capacity for uh, fungi to, to help heal the damages that humans have caused to the environment and to, you know, potentially to each other is, is absolutely huge. Um, before we wrap up, is there anything else you think our listeners should know that we haven't covered? Any final thoughts you want to leave us with? Sure. Yeah, the, one of the most uh, one of the most fantastic sounding applications of mycelium is NASA using radiotrophic strains to grow spacesuits and panels for the space stations because they literally turn radiation into their fruit bodies. Wow. And so they absorb the radiation from you know wherever they are, and if we craft the spacesuits that house humans with this mycelium, then it better protects them from the radiation in space. That, that is so cool. That is so solar punk. <laughs> well, thank you for being here with me today. This was very, very eye-opening. Cool. Yeah. Thank you for interviewing me. You're welcome. That was a great interview by Larissa Borglum, and I believe this is her premiere uh, story on Hudson Mohawk Magazine. She spoke with Avery Stemple of Collard City Mushrooms, and you can find more about them at collarcitymushrooms.com. I'm still stuck on how weird some of those things are and that idea of spacesuits and things. So for those of you who may be just be tuning in to hear Hugh Johnson, his segment has been moved to earlier in the show. That will be a regular feature now. This time we end with a look at issues of birth justice. In this piece from our archives, Catherine Rafferty talks with guest Bridget Rody Garrison, a certified nurse midwife from Rochester, New York, about the uh, certification process for midwives. Welcome to the Birth Justice Podcast, where we interview birth workers, birthing people, and activists around the topic of advocacy, equity, autonomy, and respect in childbearing and reproductive care. I'm Kathleen Rafferty. Today, we're joined by Brigitte Rody Garrison, certified nurse midwife from Rochester, New York, to talk about her work as a home birth midwife and to discuss midwifery certification in New York. I met Brigitte last year in Rochester while I was a student at 
Rochester Institute of Technology. So it's great to catch up with you. How are you doing, Brigitte? I'm doing okay, hanging in there. Good, yeah. Um, so why don't we start with um, how you got started with your work as a home birth midwife? Um, and it, could you tell us a little bit more about where you work and who you work with? Sure. So I got started because I had a really awful birth with my first baby. Um, and so the next baby I had, I met a midwife at a party and did not know what a midwife was, did not know that they were legal in New York state or anything about them, switched my care to her. And then I had an amazing birth with her. And from then on, I had, or from there on, I have been, um, that has been my obsession and I love what I do. I'm passionate about it. I went to, um, nursing school first and then to Jefferson University, which was at the time it was called Philadelphia University. Um, you need to get your master's degree. Um, and I decided to work doing home birth because the flexibility of the schedule with my family schedule was what I needed and not an endless hospital schedule. Um, besides the fact that I feel like it's the most um, humanistic form of midwifery that we can offer is right in the woman's own space or in the space of her choice um, that's really honoring the individual rather than um, a group of individuals um, that kind of get pushed through on a conveyor belt at the hospital. Um, even though I trained in the hospital and I could work in the hospital, I prefer to work out of the hospital, either at home or in a birth center would be um, fine uh, if there could ever be more birth centers. <laughs> Right. Um, so when we uh, first met last year, we did discuss some of the barriers to um, enter the profession of midwifery and offer out-of-hospital care. Could you maybe talk about what some of those challenges are that you faced in your career um, trying to offer that type of care, especially in the area where you work in Western New York? Sure. Um, yes. I feel like when I started this profession and this journey in 2009, um, it was not uh, something that was well supported and um, interwoven into the system of the hospital. Because of course we need to refer people to higher levels of care if they need to be, like the perinatal group or a pediatrician, we need to uh, consult um, in the past, it was a, a mandate that we had a collaborative physician that signed our agreement. It is no longer that um, requirement. It is now independent. But I think that the barriers are still there in providing seamless care. Um, but it's gotten a lot better. So I'm very hopeful about the future. And I think um, if there were one certification board in this state or even in this country that everyone had the same certification and passed the same test, I feel like that would be an improvement. Could you maybe talk more about what you mean by seamless care? Seamless care meaning um, if there was a woman who had a breech baby that I needed to have turned, we call that an ECV, um, I could arranged to have that done at a hospital. Um, if another, like if a woman risks out of her home birth, um, that I could follow her into the unit and help with the delivery of the baby within a safe place. Um, because obviously we want low risk women and we don't, 
typically do higher risk births, like if, if somebody develops uh, preeclampsia, um, if somebody's having twins or a breech baby, we need other providers to be understanding and to honor that we have credentials, but we also respect that they have more knowledge and um, we need an OR sometimes. So we need to make sure everybody is on good terms and we work together. Yeah, so you feel like uh, that can't always be achieved every time? Um, I think it's gotten a lot better. I think there'd been experiences in my past where I've had terrible transfer experiences where it was traumatic, not only for the mother, but it was traumatic for me as a midwife. Um, and that was fortunately 10 years ago. But I think in the meantime, I have built um, a strong reputation as far as my communication and uh, professionalism. And the hospital has also honored home birth and having Ina Mae Gaskin come in for grand rounds at right here in Rochester at Strong. And um, I feel like the communication is, it's opening up. And I, I've got to say, I'm hopeful about that. And I would love to be involved in figuring out a way to really bridge the gap for students who want to do out of hospital birth, um, because it's a whole different type of midwifery really than in the hospital. Right, yeah. Um, could you maybe just quick briefly talk about the difference between uh, home birth care versus in-hospital care with midwifery? Sure, and you know, I did work at, um, within the system at Cooperstown when I was training. I do feel like the major difference is that you really are a one-woman show in home birth. You do have an RN or a birth assistant that's helping you, but for the most part, you are it. And so you need to be very um, well-versed on your, uh, you know, nursing skills, IV skills, emergency skills, neonatal resuscitation skills, um, and the list goes on and on. You've kind of got to do everything. <laughs> you don't have a nurse that's going to hang fluids for you or that you can order medication through. You don't have an anesthesiologist. You don't have a, a consulting physician right there. But um, all of those things can be dealt with uh, if you have a good system and you have a seamless um, system that supports uh, the choice of women to birth wherever they want to as long as they're low risk. Um, so that's about the biggest difference. It does feel very isolated and, um, you need to make sure you have good neonatal assessment skills because when you leave, that baby is your responsibility still until that baby sees the pediatrician. So you are certified to take care of babies, uh, for one month as a midwife in New York state. Um, so, you know, in the hospital, we just hand the babies over to the pediatrician, um, but at home, it's you. <laughs> so you really, I feel like you really need more experience to do home birth or out of hospital birth um, than a midwife that might work in a hospital system. And I am not discounting the work that they do because they are incredibly important as well. Um, there's just different comfort levels with different situations. And uh, I think it, it really comes with experience and it comes with uh, being humble to the process and always asking questions and communicating um, with, hopefully, if you have a team, that's the best way to go. <laughs> right, yeah. Um, 
so maybe could you uh, talk about what your visions are for the future of um, access to different types of care? Well, I've got a lot of ideas. Um, <laughs> I always go through them all in my head because I would love to make a, a big difference. At least, at least I'm making a difference one woman at a time. Um, but as far as going forward, there's so many movements right now having to do with reproductive justice, having to do with Black Lives Matter, having to do with cu cultural competence and birth. I feel like um, all of those are so important and they could be really easily uh, or not easily it's going to be a long road um, they could be addressed with providing women with out-of-hospital options especially during covid um, and i really think that if we look at models of systems that work i would love to be able to help in this area to establish something like they have down in brooklyn or in manhattan or in canada but right here in rochester um, i think it's it's very much needed. Um, a midwife-owned birth center, for example, would be amazing. Um, they've made it pretty difficult to do that uh, through requiring um, a certificate of need, which costs maybe $75,000 to even get started on. So they've made it pretty difficult to jump through those hoops. Um, but, you know, we're working on it. And uh, if, if everybody works together, um, you know, I think it can happen. It just is going to take a lot of hard work and thinking outside the box, which unfortunately a lot of medical professionals are not comfortable with. <laughs> so, um, but there are those out there who will, and I, that makes me very hopeful for the future. Yeah, uh, so this is great conversation, Brigitte. Thank you so much for yeah. talking to me today. Yeah, thank you. That was a throwback to the uh, Birth Justice series by Catherine Rafferty. And this guest, Brigitte Rohde Garrison, is a certified nurse midwife from Rochester, New York. And that is our show. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. I'm Sina Bazilahiki, co-host and engineer. And I'm Bria Barthel, co-host, segment producer, and partial headlines editor for this episode. We want to thank all of the volunteers who helped. Contri contributors to today's episode are Mark Dunley for segment production and most of the headlines, and segment producers Larissa Borglum and Katie Rafferty, plus Hugh Johnson for his weekly look at climate and weather. We want to hear from you. You can find us on Instagram and Facebook at Hudson Mohawk Mag, or you can send us an email to hmm at mediasanctuary.org. We love to hear what our listeners are thinking and what you want to hear on the radio. Tune in weekdays at 7 a.m., 9 a.m., and 6 p.m. to hear local news or stream Sanctuary Radio at mediasanctuary.org. Full episodes and individual stories are available on demand at our website and on your favorite podcast platform. And thanks to you, our listeners, for making this all worthwhile. <laughs>